Welcome to How We Raised It, the extraordinary stories of mega gifts and multi-million dollar philanthropic campaigns from the Australian arts leaders who delivered them. I'm your host, Melissa Smith, and this series is commissioned by Creative Partnerships Australia and Noble Ambition. On today's episode, we have Kate Tawney, former CEO of the State Library of Victoria, now currently the CEO of Peter McCallum Foundation since September 2021. Kate is also the director of the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. Kate joined as CEO of the State Library of Victoria in 2015, following almost 20 years at ABC, including Head of News from 2009 to 2015. From humble beginnings and hidden rooms, the extraordinary story of the State Library of Victoria securing two of the largest gifts to libraries in Australia and making it a place of learning and inspiration for everyone. Hidden Rooms, John Wiley, Jane Hansen, and Tattooed Skateboarders. This is the story of the State Library of Victoria's $28 million campaign. Kate, for joining us this morning. I'm so delighted to have you here on How We Raised It. Thanks so much for having me, Melissa. You have dedicated your career to storytelling, be it at the, your time at the ABC and more recently at the State Library of Victoria. Libraries and books have no doubt been so important to you. Growing up in Ballarat, what was one of the favourite stories you used to read? Well, my mum was a great Enid Blyton fan. So we had every single Enid book. And my mum, I think my storytelling and my love of storytelling comes from my mum. She was a beautiful storyteller. And I have to say, when she would read Enid Blyton to us, there was a fair bit of license taken. So a little <laughs> bit of creativity in there. Those are the books that I, I most remember as books that brought us together. And I have five, I'm one of five. And so those were books that really did gather us together. Oh, I love Ina Blyton as well. And in fact, I read reading them to my children now. You spent 20 years at the ABC, the last six years as director of ABC News. Now, when we first met at an event for an alumni at RMIT University, you spoke about this extraordinary role that you had at the ABC. I thought it was amazing. And then I find out you're joining the State Library of Victoria CEO. What compelled you to take that leap to the library? I was really lucky, you know, when I was sort of a teenager, I knew what I wanted to do. I really knew that I wanted to be a broadcast journalist and I always knew that it was broadcast, not print. And it wasn't until I was at university that I realized how lucky I was to have kind of a, a path that I really wanted to follow. And more than that, I wanted to work for the ABC. So I think if you're a broadcast journalist, there is no better place for you to be because of all of the scale of programming that you can contribute to, but also the reputation of the ABC. And I remember very distinctly walking into Ripon Lee on my first shift, and I was just a casual. And I remember feeling this extraordinary sort of sense of pride, but also responsibility that I was going to contribute to this legacy of incredible journalism that had gone on for decades and decades. And so to actually get in the door at the ABC was extraordinary. I only got in the door because I worked overnight shifts and just would do anything possible to be there. And I had an amazing career. So, you know, 22 years. And within that 22 years, I probably had four or five different iterations of my career, whether it was reporting or becoming 
becoming an, an editor, an executive producer, moving into being a foreign editor. And then, of course, leading the News and Current Affairs Division. And I did that for seven years and it was amazing. I feel that it was such a privilege to do that. But those are intense jobs when you're leading a group of 1,500 people across the nation and across the world. There's not a moment in your day that you are not thinking about either, you know, a crew or a correspondent or a reporter or a story that you're covering or even HR issues. It's an all-encompassing role. So after, after seven years, I was thinking about what the next thing would be for me. And, you know, as often happens, it was just this wonderful serendipitous moment where I found out about the library job and I had a coffee with John Wiley, who was the president. And, you know, to be honest, I was really information sourcing. I was kind of interested, but really didn't know much about the library at at that time. And also I didn't know whether or not libraries had a future in terms of a digital age. So that was this incredible moment where I was brave enough to say, well, you know, is the library actually going to be around? And John said, go and sit in that library for half a day and then tell me whether or not you want the job, which I did. And I was just amazed by the transformation that I saw within that library. So after spending, you know, a couple of hours there, I rang him and said, I want to throw my hat in the ring. (laughs) Oh, how wonderful. So on that very first day when you started... You walked up those steps on Swanson Street. How are you feeling? Trepidation? Well, no, exactly the same way as I felt walking into the ABC. And I think what I realised as I was sort of thinking of making the shift from the ABC, it does force you when you're you're thinking about your career and making a move to think about what drives you and what, what motivates you. And I felt the same way walking up those steps. You know, here was this incredible institution that had transformed over 160 years to remain much loved and, you know, really valued by the community. That was because of the legacy of incredible people who had worked there and that I was having this opportunity to be part of that legacy. So I think for me, that was a process of discovery that the things that drive me are purpose and a social good. And I really believe in institutions that contribute to our democracy and our society and the public good. That's what sort of motivates me. So in a way, I felt exactly the same sense of both pride, but also a responsibility that in my time, you know, that we needed to actually ensure that we were leaving a library that was much loved and greatly valued by the community. At that early stage, what were your first priorities? Well, I I knew very clearly that we had a big capital project to do. So the library had been given money by the state government to really address the major issues, which was a fantastic problem to have around space. I I do remember that first day walking around the library and people sitting on the floor, people sitting next to, you know, PowerPoints, but literally there was not a spare seat in that place. And so John, under John Wiley's leadership, he convinced the government to provide, I think it was $53 million at that point in time, but promised government that the library would raise an extra $30 million. And that, to be honest, was a crazy brave deal to enter (laughs) into because, of course, librarians, much like ABC journalists, don't know how to ask 
ask for money. <laughs> you know, librarians are extraordinary in that they are humble, they get on with the job, they don't thump the table, um, and it's an amazing trait. And like ABC journalists, you just don't ask for money. And so that was really something that we needed to shift and, and shape. And so that was one of my priorities. And also looking at where we had landed in terms of the redesign of a library, ensuring that it was user focused and ensuring that, that the plans were going to future proof the library. And look, the other priority too was to get in and to have a really good look at the collection because I was really conscious that when I got the job, the feedback that I had was so great. People saying, oh my God, that's amazing. It's such a fantastic jo uh, job and what a beautiful space. And I love the library. And I would say, so when was the last time you were there? And they would say, oh, it'd be 10 years. Oh no, it could be 20. No, it'd be 30 years. So this institution that everyone loved, but how many people used it and, and how relevant was it? two people. So, you know, those were my priorities to kind of look at this extraordinary collection, look at the extraordinary spaces that we had, and to think about ways to ensure that those things were highly relevant to people and not just much loved in a very nostalgic way. What an exciting challenge. It was ahead a of great you. challenge. So I want to speak more about the Vision 2020 campaign, which was what you were speaking about with the public-private partnership model that was developed with the Victorian government. And they were going to, need to contribute two-thirds should the library be able to raise approximately $30 million. Now, no library had ever raised that type of money through a campaign before. And you were, as you said, came from the ABC who doesn't like to really ask for money and yet you need to raise $30 million. How on earth did you learn how to do this so quickly? Look, absolutely critically importantly was the board under the leadership of John Wiley. And I also think it's one of those things where if you set an extraordinarily high bar, people panic and then say, okay, let's get on with it. And that's exactly what we did. So there is no way that the library, the management team and me could ever have raised that money without it being a really proactive partnership with John Wiley, with Christine Christian, with Maria Myers and others, because we had one very clear vision and that sense of leadership when you have a board willing to invest it makes that discussion with other donors so much easier. And we had a great story to tell. This was a fantastic sort of gift to the community, but not only a gift to the community now, it was absolutely a gift for future generations. I think the fact that, that the library sector and this humility about the library sector, that, you know, we're not a sector and we haven't been a sector that asks for a lot of money, even from government, but this sort of sense that we got our house in order, we knew exactly what we needed to do, what we were promising to create, and we were proudly communicating that. And I think we were able to do that together. So I would say that it was a shift in the library's thinking and a, a sense of sort of standing up, you know, and putting our shoulders back and saying, this is pretty amazing. You know, what we and previous generations have been able to create here is extraordinary. In a digital age, it's one of the busiest libraries in the world. So let's really leverage that. Let's make an absolute virtue of that and ensure that in 50 years time, we have done exactly what those 160 years ago did in thinking about the future of Victoria. So I think it was that partnership with the library and the board that was critically important. And I think big aspirations are fabulous, Melissa. It always sort of feels 
terrifying, but if it's not terrifying, you're not ambitious enough. I couldn't agree more. I do like your comment about there's panic and then just get on with it. And I think the amount of panic is directly in proportion to how long you have to deliver a campaign. That's right. And you didn't have very much time. So I'm sure the panic was very efficiently undertaken (laughs) and then moved forward. And I want you to kind of talk us through this campaign because I think it's such a wonderful example of a very big and bold vision that nobody thought libraries could perhaps achieve like anything like this until now that you have. What was one of those first things that you did in the very early stages of the campaign? Well, the critical thing that we did was to celebrate and shout from the rooftops the success of the library. I had no idea that Australia, let alone Melbourne, had the fourth most visited library in the world. That is just mind-blowing. And to be honest, if it was ever any other part of the sector or other sectors, you'd know about it. Yes. But again, this lovely humility of the library. So in a way, coming in from the outside, it was an opportunity for me to say, look at this. This is unbelievable and it's yours. And it's busy now in this incredibly busy digital age. So let's ensure that it rides that wave and celebrate the transformation that had already be made. But more importantly too, I think for me, it was such a steep learning curve for the whole sector. And every step of the way was, oh my goodness, this is incredible. You know, I would go to public libraries across Victoria and the things that were happening in public libraries were amazing. So it wasn't only a celebration and pointing to the extraordinary success of the state library, but saying across the state, you have more than 200 libraries doing amazing things. There are more library members than there are AFL club members. So this is an amazing sector. (laughs) And then the next step was to say, it's amazing and we need to continue to ensure that it remains as such. Yeah, so it was establishing and sort of lifting our success before we could then mount a case for why we were worth investing in. And in so doing, that really embeds the confidence of you and your organisation and your people and what you have in this vision going forward. And I think that confidence is so important that goes with great ambition is that you need to be authentic and be able to carry it off. I want to talk about that $10 million gift that came through from the Ian Potter Foundation early in 2015. Absolutely. So this important. This was so important. Tell me a little bit more about that. That was so critical to us because, as you know, there's a contagion. I just have to say the Ian Potter Foundation, the leadership that they showed and the vision that they showed was really amazing. You know, from Charles through the entire board and the executive as well. It was a lovely acknowledgement of the unveiling of parts of the library that had been closeted for so long. So I think it was a real understanding of the vision and an investment in spaces that had been so visionary 160 years ago. So the Ian Potter Foundation supported the work that was done to the original reading room. And the original reading room had been closed for 17 years. It is truly, Melissa, one of the most beautiful spaces in Melbourne. Decades ago, all the skylights had been covered over because there were all sorts of maintenance issues and they didn't have money to fix them. And so it was a dark room, lots of maintenance issues that meant that it couldn't be open to the public, but glorious, absolutely glorious. The Ian Potter Foundation's vision in understanding 
that to celebrate and to bring back to life a space like that would actually provide a real sort of sense of symbolic leadership for us to then springboard into other donations and that was critical to our success. So we had significant donation from Ian Potter and that was the first step and then quickly after that we had a number of other major donors uh, come through and that was absolutely fantastic. So that Ian Potter gift represented about a third of your campaign Correct. total yes. Correct. and was very early stages in being secured within the campaign phase. It was also the largest gift to an Australian library ever to date. Was that an important part? That was terribly important and came off the back of that notion of, look, this is the success of the library. We have people sitting on the floor at the moment, and yet we have these spaces. With a little bit of love, this room can be returned to its former glory, and that became critical. And then off the back of that, those conversations with other donors became so much easier because, you know, leadership is so critically important. It's like any form of investment, a sort of sense of, oh, right, okay, let's, let me hear more about that, which is terrific. And board leadership was absolutely critical in that. Well, further to that, the next year, there was an $8 million gift. Again, the second largest gift to libraries in Australia from your president, John Wiley. That's right. John and Miriam Wiley Foundation. Tell me a little bit more about how that one came out and how the number was landed upon. Look, I think it you know can sort of roll back to John's interest in chairing the library, which I just think is so fantastic because, you know, he is... Such an experienced, incredibly brilliant man. He probably had the choice of lots and lots of places to chair. And he chose the library because he loves libraries and also because he has an incredibly egalitarian view of life. And that notion that anybody should have access to knowledge and education and lifelong learning absolutely runs through his veins and most importantly through Miriam's as well. They are committed to ensuring that people who don't have access to universities or might not have access to a range of other things can come to a library for free to have access to databases and an extraordinary collection. And so so his commitment to sort of not only providing a significant financial commitment, but the time and effort that he has invested in the library has been extraordinary. And so look, when the discussions started with John and Miriam around their donation, we absolutely had to identify something that was going to resonate with them. And both felt very strongly about the need to throw open the collection and share some of those stories within the stories around the collection. And as you know, Melissa, at any time, any gallery or library or museum can only really display and exhibit about 3% of its collection. So most of our collection is in our stacks or in our storage in Ballarat at BOSS 2, which is our storage facility. And so their focus was really, well, you know, you come up with something that allows us to celebrate the collection and also to ensure that the library and the redevelopment of the library really activates in a way that just continues that notion of it doesn't matter why you come, we don't mind what you're doing, but come and, you know, enjoy these spaces. And that's how we came up with the Victoria Gallery. So one of our original gallery spaces, which again had been off limits to the public for a number of years for the same reason, we hadn't had the money to refurbish it. 
that's become the most glorious exhibition space. Absolutely beautiful. And our first exhibition in there was a really eclectic celebration of a number of library items, but they were all linked by really beautiful sort of side stories. And when we were thinking about that exhibition and pitching to Miriam and John, we explored the idea of a bespoke library exhibition. So when you think about exhibitions, they're often models of museums or galleries. What we wanted to do was do something that was absolutely reflective of library uh, collection. And in a library, you have fact, you have manuscripts, you have factual information, and you have fiction. And so this exhibition drew both those things together in the most beautiful way. So that became really important to the pitch to Miriam and John, and also the opening of the Russell Street entrance to the library, which again had been closed for more than two decades, which actually created this beautiful thoroughfare through the library. So to get from Russell Street to Swanson Street. So it was the entrance to Victoria Gallery, but it also was a much bigger commitment to the library absolutely opening all spaces up. So that became the focus for Miriam and Wiley's incredibly generous donation. It's such an extraordinary way that you craft what what is a, a very significant capital campaign into such perfectly exciting bespoke pieces as appropriate to each donor. And I wanted to talk more into that because you certainly did that for John and Miriam, egalitarianism and access in the stories. And then shortly thereafter, you had a succession in 2017 of quite a few gifts from board members, very significant. The Hanson Little Foundation of 3.5 million, 3 million from Alan and Maria Myers, 2 million from Christine Christian. And each of these were, again, for quite bespoke pieces within the broader capital campaign. Can you tell me how how did you plan and engage with each of your board members in those ways to find the right projects for the right amount? I'll start with Christine and Christine, who is now president of yes. the library, <laughs> wonderfully. And I have, have to very clearly state that Christine had, prior to my arrival, she'd already started to think about the pre-entrepreneur space and, you know, lots of co-working spaces happening, but she was really interested in supporting people with, you know, business ideas, but those that wouldn't see themselves in the co-working space with the table tennis tables and the, you know, (laughs) it it was just this sort of, it was a seed that she had. We looked at the inquiry desk data over the past five years and we saw an absolutely steep increase in the number of people coming in and having business-related inquiries across Victoria. That's exactly the increase in trends in inquiries that others were. And, and if you think about it, Melissa, it's not surprising. Our educate and, you know, now our employment ecosystem is just changing so Absolutely. rapidly. And most people kind of think about the entrepreneur space as the, you know, the under 30s or the under 40s potentially. And what we saw in that data was actually it was over 50s, very big propensity of women. And often it was people who had either had time in the workforce, but in the back of their mind, they'd always had this little thing that they kind of wanted to explore and then they had the capacity to do it. Or you had people who were being made redundant or there was, um, you know, particularly in specific regions where their industry was closing down and people were being forced into self-employment. And the common thread was that these are people who probably would feel really uncomfortable about going to a university incubator. So no question, 
is silly in a library. As a public sector organisation, we are not in the business of competing, but we know that there's a springboard. We know that there are people who need to get there. So let's offer the really safe space that's a springboard that has all of the support for people to be able to explore whether their ideas are good or bad ideas or whether or not, you know, the path that they're taking is the right one or not. But let's make sure that whatever we are doing, we are then encouraging people to go out into an ecosystem that exists. So that start space, which is now up and running and has 250 members and a waiting list of, I think, uh, equal, that has been extraordinary. And I think the library is exploring opportunities with the state government and hopefully other donors about piloting that, particularly post-COVID, in other parts of the state where there's real need. I think it's a wonderful example of the impact that can be created. And then there was also some other wonderful gifts. Tell me a little bit about Jane Hansen's gifts that was oh, made. Jane and Paul, Jane Hansen and Paul Little, you know, are just the most extraordinary people, just beautiful people with the biggest hearts. So for Jane and Paul, they were both so focused on that notion of everyone benefiting from the library and ensuring that egalitarian nature and, you know, a low barrier to entry. And one of the things that we were really wanting to achieve is knowing that we're a state library and making that relevant and making that real. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was to have much greater connectivity to the public library network across the state, understanding that public libraries have so little resources and so few opportunities to amplify their resources. And so what we were thinking was, well, look, you know, we do programming every day at the library, whether it's debates, educational programming. We've got the Wheeler Centre here that, you know, delivers amazing programming every week. We've got the Writers' Festival. We've got Merging Writers' Festival within the Wheeler Centre. You know, how can we create a space where we we allow all of those forums to use the space and we make content available to public libraries at their will. Those who want to use it and those who don't, that's fine. But more importantly, and this came through in the discussions with Paul and Jane, that it wasn't a one-way thing. It wasn't the state library delivering content to the regions, you know, that it was a two-way conversation, that the state library started to hear from libraries across Victoria and that Victorians that never had the opportunity to come to the library had the connectivity. So, so Jane and Paul supported the Conversation Quarter, which is an enormous space with the latest connectivity allowing us to connect with not only public libraries, but tertiary organisations and anyone else who wants to connect with the state library. And the other part of their donation was a Hanson Hall. So what we found, and I have this lovely story of when I first arrived at the library and we have a fair few skateboarders out the front of the library, (laughs) and I personally love the skateboarders. But on one occasion, I got, uh, I was sent a a video of some skateboarders. I didn't know, but they were world-class skateboarders, you know, really renowned. And this video had gone around the world and they were skateboarding at the front. And then a security guard came and moved them along as we need to do. But he rolled up his sleeve and he had a tattoo of the State Library on his arm. And the other one rolled up his uh, jeans and he had a tattoo on his leg. So I ended up getting in contact with them because I was so blown away. And they were like, oh my God, we just love this place. You know, it's our favorite place and all it represents. And I said, have you ever been in? And he said, look, I tried to get in once, but I wasn't allowed in with my skateboard. 
So Jane and Paul, when we were in the Swanson Street entrance of the library and I was saying, look, sometimes people are a little bit overwhelmed. They come to the front door, they don't know whether or not they can continue on inside. And so we wanted to create this really relaxed, welcoming space as soon as you walk through the front door of the library where people could drink coffee and sit and and wait to meet people that they didn't feel that they were being moved on. And Jane absolutely got that. And again, that space became a much more effective space because of the, the discussions that we had with Jane and Paul and through their donation. So that relationship was one of the great joys of my library experience, actually meeting them. It's so lovely to hear this, the warmth and the generosity of spirit from both the library and the donors in creating this. What strikes me is the, the co-design element of, of it as well. It is a deeply collaborative process, your philanthropic campaign, not simply here is the numbers, this is what we need to achieve, we need people to plug in in these areas. It was highly collaborative by the sounds of it. Lisa, it may well have been my lack of fundraising experience. (laughs) So you might be very kind there. But literally, I've, you know, I kind of feel if people are wanting to give to you and it has to be with heart and with meaning and those relationships need to be ongoing because that's a stamp that they have left and a legacy that they have left that I want them to feel totally enveloped by and part of and proud of. But I think perhaps it is your um, recency to fundraising and philanthropy, (laughs) shall we call it like that, that it brings that, it's just the simplicity of it. It is truly a genuine partnership. And that is why I find this this work that we do is so inspiring because it's bringing people together in a collective vision. I just love these stories. I'm so delighted we're having this conversation. (laughs) But one of the challenges, however, is that at the same time, you are dealing with these individuals, you're creating these things, but many of these very large donors are your board members. Yeah. How do you, as CEO, navigate both their roles as as board members and also major donors? Yeah. Look, it's so, it's so funny because a lot of people have asked about that. And I, I do think that my experience at the ABC really helped with that. We had terribly complex sort of stories that we would cover and lots of sort of complex feedback from stakeholders, whether it's prime ministers or treasurers or whatever. And so I, I think I've come up in an environment whereby you have really clear frameworks. And you start with a clear framework. And so, you know, we've mentioned a number of board members who donated, but I would have to say there are a number of board members who donated in equally important ways in helping develop the framework. In a journalistic environment, you can have robust and really clear and frank conversations, and that is a natural way of life. It's only since I've left journalism, to be honest, that I've realized that that's not necessarily (laughs) how some sectors work. I'm really relaxed about having open conversations. And so at the beginning, we had a very open conversation at a board meeting when I said, okay, so how are we going to manage this? I think we've got an audit and risk committee. I just need to get clarity from the board around me working with an audit and risk committee to come up with a framework and an approval framework and an insurance that from state government through to library board, through to library management, there's clarity around how decisions are going to be made. And if there's clarity in a framework, we we whipped that up really well. And so once we had that framework, 
the rest of the discussions were easy. And there were, there were a few robust sort of, hang on, is that right? Is that right? From both sides. But we did not have an issue. We really did not have an issue. And I think we had a board that was aligned and so deeply invested in ensuring that things worked and that there was probity around that and that we were proud of our, our board donations. So I think that was the key to upfront very quickly get some rules in place and that becomes your first, those are your first principles and from there open and honest conversations. I think that's fantastic. Lizanne McGregor from the MCA said a similar thing in terms of managing any potential conflict of interest or understanding where the roles and responsibilities lays in these types of things. The other part of that is having these robust conversations and too often they're not had and there isn't that clarity of where people stand and it's just so incredibly important. It's wonderful you to reinforce that. I wanted to shift to the public stage of this campaign. Now, what we've spoken really about today is traditionally the quieter stage, even though they were being announced throughout that period. But the public stage is you going out to a broader supporter base across the state, no doubt. And in 2017, this was the last stage and you needed to raise 5.9 million. How would you characterize this stage of the, the campaign versus what you had been doing to date prior to then? I think there were two things sort of going on. I think in the early stage with our major donors, which was so important, that was building momentum and building a sort of sense of contagion. But it was also building this sense of what's going on at the library? Is there something going on at the library? We just saw that there was a building sort of public interest in what was happening at the library, which was fantastic. So I think we moved from potentially sort of taking the, this gorgeous institution for granted, loving it, but it probably taking it for granted a little bit to there's something happening at the library. There's something going on and I'm kind of interested in what's going on at the library. And so we deliberately had that sort of first year of building that momentum. And then we flipped that to, so here we are, we're celebrating, you know, one of the most successful libraries in the world. Aren't we? Isn't it fantastic that Victorians love their libraries, that they cherish their history? So let's make sure that we are doing what previous generations have done and build a library for the future. It's yours. Come celebrate and build it for you know future generations. So that was at the core of what we wanted to achieve. And I think we flipped to a little bit from, you know, we've been talking about specific spaces and, uh, and in a way, the shiny new things. We began to talk more about, yes, it was going to be a shiny, beautiful new building that we would be able to celebrate. But in the heart of that building were people with the most extraordinary skills, services that were being used each and every day that without a state library, there would be a real absence, you know, and we started to talk more about those services, the services that we offer for the homeless, the services that we offer for those without access to digital technology, just the services that sometimes the community takes for granted. So it became very much a community campaign around, you know, uh, this is, this is incredible. It's a humble, beautiful sector doing amazing things. Now we need to turbocharge it. I love that because it just reinforces the egalitarian nature that everybody can not only enjoy the library, but everybody can also be a philanthropist and support it. Yeah. It's a really important yeah. message. I'd like to shift, if I may, to the personal. In August 19, just as the final stages for the launch were being put in place for the campaign, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. I was. And following surgery and treatment, you returned three months later to launch Vision 2020 in December. 
Where did you find that strength and resilience to do that? Oh, no, look, I think, yeah, it was a bit of a blip. (laughs) 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 But, you know, I was so humbled and really I think the team had been so focused and absolutely knew what needed to be done. I was just so humbled by how amazing they were, you know, because it was just sort of like, really, now? The timing is so terrible. And yet they just totally rallied. One of my colleagues, Sarah Slade in particular, who was running Vision 2020, literally I remember her ringing me and saying, okay, you just forget all about it and we'll let you know when we're launching and now you get better. And that was just beautiful, really, really beautiful. So I had enormous support from the library and from the library board. And it felt as though it was the baby and, oh, my God, I'm not going to be there. And But I was really disciplined and very strict and I did just tune out and I really focused on myself and look my situation was a good situation you know if if you had to go go through that my my outcome was okay and so I knew that but it did give me a lot of perspective around you know just what was important and I loved the fact one of the things I did love was just knowing that The library team had everything under control and would deliver in spades, and they did. You are extraordinary. The campaign is extraordinary, the the strength that you had. Can you tell me that moment when you did come back and there was no doubt champagne and no doubt a ribbon was cut in some way, (laughs) what did delivering the 2020 Vision campaign mean to you? Look, we we talk a lot about sort of the campaign itself and the building and the capital delivery. But I remember a couple of days after the building opened and I was up in the Ian Potter Queen's Hall and a couple walked in and I was up on a mezzanine and I looked as they walked in and we talk about jaw dropping. I watched jaw dropping and I thought then that's incredible. And so I walked downstairs and I introduced myself and they'd driven from Mildura. They hadn't been at the State Library for 40 years. We have his grandfather's uh, war diary in the collection. That summed it up for me. It was just we've brought this to life for people who might otherwise not have use the library. So literally that that moment, I'll never forget that image. And I was looking down and both their jaws dropped. It was just beautiful. That is beautiful. And it's so deeply humbling and satisfying, no doubt. Yeah. yeah. I've asked this question of of my other guests and I'm curious to, to your thoughts. What this campaign did was not only achieve something no library had ever done in Australia, it also achieved the two largest gift to date to libraries in Australia. What does that mean for arts philanthropy more broadly, do you think? What has been the impact of this campaign in lifting expectations, ambitions, professionalism, how campaigns run? What do you think the impact has been in arts philanthropy in Australia? I don't know, but, but I, do, I do think I've really enjoyed my time on the national and state libraries of Australia and working with the other CEOs of state and national libraries. And I do think that it's raised our confidence as a sector to be able to actually get out there and really tell our story. Because I think the library story is as good as any story that there is. And so 
Look, I don't think I can take any credit for, you know, whether or not it's had an impact on any, you know, the arts community more generally. But I hope that it has given the library sector confidence to really seek support because I think what the library sector is doing is so meaningful and has such longevity And so I think for philanthropists looking to support programs, particularly programs for the disadvantaged, it's happening in libraries. And it's just that libraries need to talk more about it. I agree with you. They need to be uh, more vocal, like their peers in other arts areas, perhaps (laughs) one might say. From where I sit, I've spent almost 20 years in philanthropy in this sector. And I remember my very first role at the Powerhouse Museum, and I set up their philanthropy program. And remember hearing that Edmund Capon and all that he was achieving at the Art Gallery, of course, they raise money there. And people would say to me, well, the museum, they, they don't raise money. In the libraries, they don't raise money like that. And so for me personally, this campaign is oh. just proof that absolutely <laughs> libraries do, museums do, yeah. and everybody with a bold vision can yield bold gifts. So thank you so very, very much, Kate, for your vision and your inspiring stories and all the work that you have done to create what an extraordinary, extraordinary library for the past 165 years celebrating this year. And I can't wait to see what is next for you. Thank no, you so you're much. you're so kind. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. What an amazing story from Kate Tawney and the State Library of Victoria. Such extraordinary leadership. My three key learnings from this story are, one, State Library of Victoria's campaign was the most ambitious to date for a public library in Australia. Now, they had the commitment of the Victorian government to a public-private partnership model, so they did not have the luxury of not being successful. Once they had determined what the vision is and what they needed to do, they mobilized their assets, including their CEO and their board, And they put a plan in place and got on with it. And in five years from launching the campaign to opening the doors, they achieved Australia's largest campaign for a library, including two of the largest gifts to date to libraries in Australia. Two, securing the mega gifts was essential to the success of the campaign. And these were realized through genuine relationships with very high levels of engagement and iterative design discussion within the remit of the campaign itself. It's clear from Kate what a joyful, positive experience these relationships and these gifts must have been for those involved. The excitement and the generosity of realizing these gifts is just palpable from Kate's story. Three, an organization must have clear policies and procedures in place to navigate complex relationships with boards who are also major donors. Now, Kate identified this risk from the very outset and had very open and transparent conversations with her board and developed very clear rules of engagement from the outset. This ensured transparency and highly effective engagement, ensuring relationships were managed professionally and appropriately. My recommendations to apply in your own organization are one, set a bold vision with a bold target, then get on with it. Get it done. Two, build genuine, deep relationships with donors in order to collectively realize extraordinary gifts that become transformational for the organization, its leaders, and the donors themselves. And three, establish clear policies to support leadership in navigating potential complexity 
and managing effective relationships with board members and donors. Thanks for listening to How We Raised It. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leaving a review helps others find the podcast. For more resources and arts philanthropy know-how, head to creativepartnerships.gov.au. For more on fundraising leadership, go to nobleambition.com.au.